and welcome to Presidential Profiles. I'm your host, Nicole Larson, and today we're going to be talking about George Washington, the first person to ever hold the title President of the United States. His presidency was revolutionary, literally, as he was the first person to actively serve in the military while also being president, and led the Patriot forces in the American Revolutionary War. In this episode, we will learn how George came to be the general of the American military, then unanimously elected president. But first, let's figure out what is generally known and thought of about Washington by speaking with American A.J. Alomar. I'm sitting down with American A.J. Alomar to assess where George Washington lies in the public mind and gauge his legacy in the United States. Thank you so much, AJ. And my first question for you is what are the first three words that come to mind when you hear the name George Washington? I would say the first three words would be um, president, general, and founding father, if that's hyphenated. Sure. Um, so Washington was president from 1789 to 1797. What comes to mind when you think of that specific time period? Um, like the beginning of America, establishing um, our political system, um, our democracy, really a time of like rebirth, uh, just like removing ourselves from being Britain's colonies. So a lot of turmoil, but a lot of new energy. And how would you describe Washington as a leader? Um, I would say he's definitely painted as an amazing leader. I don't know much about him specifically. I knew like in the French Indian War, I'm pretty sure he was like a pretty bad general and got captured a bunch. Um, so not sure what that means about him, but I think he did do a lot. Like he was our first president. Everybody wanted him. I think that the fact that he didn't just stay on and stopped after two terms is a real sign of good leadership. Sure. What did you learn about Washington like growing up in school? Um, I think most of like the pizzazzy like propaganda stuff, like he was our amazing first president. He like led us uh, through revolution. He's a great guy, um, nothing really too interesting. And then in high school, we learned kind of more how he was more, um, he, he had a different side than all that stuff and was a deeper figure, um, which is pretty interesting because I do think he's glorified probably more than he should be. That's a really good point. Um, so then on a scale from one to 10, where would you place Washington as a president? Um, I would, I would guess I'd say like seven or eight, like he was, he was the first one to do it. So props to him. Would that rating be different if I asked you to like rate him as a person, like to rate his character? Yeah, that would definitely scale it down. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then my last question for you is just kind of what do you see is the lasting legacy of George Washington? I think the lasting legacy, um, George Washington. Sorry, that's the interesting question. Um, I would say definitely, uh, 
I mean, not to keep talking about the ending two terms, but that was definitely a big part of his legacy. Obviously, FDR messed it up. Um, I'd also say a lot of his legacy has to do um, with this whole, with America's like ideals around um, freedom and uh, leadership almost and individualism. I think he is really at the forefront of a lot of that. And when we learn about being a leader or our freedom, he's often brought into conversation. So I think that's also a big part of his legacy. Great. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me, AJ, and talking about George Washington this morning. Of course. Thank you to AJ for helping me contextualize what is generally remembered about George Washington. AJ mentioned that perhaps Washington is glorified in history a bit more than he should be. Well, that's for you to decide throughout this episode. So now let's hear from our sponsors before we dive into the life and presidency of George Washington. Presidential Profiles is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a full-time job in itself. ZipRecruiter saves you valuable time by finding qualified candidates for you. One click sends your job to over 100 of the internet's leading job sites, then ZipRecruiter's matching technology actively invites qualified candidates to apply. ZipRecruiter does the hiring process for you. It's so effective that four out of five employers that post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So start posting for free on ZipRecruiter.com. Presidential Profiles is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is supporting us today, and they're ready to support you by turning your dream into a reality. They make it easy to launch your passion project. Are you looking to start a new business? Do you want to showcase your work? Do you want to sell your products? Well, Squarespace is the tool for you. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks so you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. They have powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online and analytics that help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out the box, so there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple, and you can get all the help you need. With their 24-7 award-winning customer support, Squarespace empowers millions of people. Whether you're a designer, lawyer, artist, gamer, or restaurateur, turn your great idea into a reality. Head over to squarespace.com now to set up your website today. George Washington was born in the colony of Virginia on February 22, 1732. Actually, he was technically born on February 11, 1731, but when the colony switched to the Gregorian calendar from the Julian calendar, his birthday was moved forward 11 days. And because his birthday fell before the old date for the New Year's, but after the new day for the New Year's, his birth year was changed to 1732. His father was a justice of the peace and had four children from a previous marriage. George was his first child with his second wife, Mary Ball Washington. The two would then have five more children together. George did not receive a formal education growing up, just like most children at this time, but due to his family's prominence and his father's occupation in law, George had many resources and people to teach him things along the way. He specifically enjoyed math and became a talented map maker and surveyor. In 1749, George received a surveyor's license from the College of William and Mary and was soon appointed surveyor of Culpeper County, Virginia. 
One of George's brothers, named Lawrence, served as a general in the Virginia militia, and it was Lawrence that inspired George to seek military service. Virginia's Lieutenant Governor, Robert Dinwiddie, appointed George as a commander of a militia district, but in 1754, the French and Indian War broke out. The war was a fight between the boundaries of colonies. Fighting primarily took place along the frontiers of Virginia in the south to Newfoundland in the north. It specifically began with a dispute over the control of the area called the Forks of Ohio, now Pittsburgh. The dispute escalated into violence in May of 1754 with the Battle of Jumonville Glen. Just before then, Dinwiddie promoted Washington to the position of Lieutenant Colonel of the Virginia Regiment, and it was Washington that led the Virginia militia into battle at Jumonville Glen, and the French and Indian War was underway. Then, in 1755, Washington took a volunteer position as an aide to General Edward Braddock. At this time, Washington became very ill with dysentery, a gastrointestinal infection, so he himself refrained from going into battle. But even before being fully recovered, he rode back into fighting and even had two of his horses shot while riding them, and his hat and his coat were also pierced with bullets. This bravery, exhibited at the Battle of Fort Necessity, solidified Washington's reputation as a great leader under pressure. The French and Indian War continued for a couple years after, but Washington resigned his post and returned to Mount Vernon, his home estate in Virginia that he took ownership of after the death of his brother Lawrence. When Washington was 26, he married Martha Dandridge Custis. She was previously married to a plantation owner named Daniel Park Custis, and her and Daniel had two children together, John, nicknamed Jackie, and Martha, nicknamed Patsy. George and Martha never had any kids of their own in their marriage, which was either due to George's infertility as a result of smallpox a few years earlier, or due to Martha's complications during the birth of her daughter, Patsy. Either way, George raised Jackie and Patsy as his own, and the two children loved their stepfather. They lived at Mount Vernon in Northern Virginia and started a happy life. George started a profession as a tobacco and a wheat planter. Another crop that he planted and harvested, unknown to most today, was marijuana. Yep, George Washington grew weed, but back then there were no laws against doing so, and there were also reports that George partook in the smoking of his harvest. Importantly, Martha brought some of her late husband's wealth into her new marriage, and also brought his 84 slaves to Mount Vernon. George then became one of Virginia's wealthiest men. Through a series of land deals, Washington doubled the size of Mount Vernon, and by 1775, the estate's slave population grew to over 100. Due to his reputation and wealth, Washington started to hold local offices and was soon elected to the Virginia Provisional Legislature, and in 1758, he started representing Frederick County in the House of Burgesses. He was also an open critic of Great Britain's taxation policies towards the colonies. In 1769, he even brought forth legislation in the Virginia Assembly to establish an embargo on goods from Great Britain. But even through his early political power, George remained a planter. He also enjoyed hunting, fishing, and theater in his downtime. But unfortunately, this time of Washington family peace and prosperity was attacked by the death of Patsy when she was only 17. This death devastated George, and he took a leave of absence from his business activity for three months to mourn with his wife. 
During this time, colonial disdain for their mother nation of England grew. There was ardent colonial opposition to the Stamp Act of 1765 that imposed a tax on many paper products like parchment, newspapers, and playing cards. And then in the year 1766, Parliament passed the Declaratory Act that asserted parliamentary law was higher than colonial law. The next year, in 1767, the Townsend Acts posed another series of taxation duties that also caused anger in the colonies. George was opposed to this, quote, taxation without representation, as were many other colonies who led large-scale protests and boycotts of British goods. One of these boycotts was, of course, the famous Boston Tea Party, in which colonists poured barrels of British imported tea into the Boston Harbor. Parliament responded to this so-called tyranny with the coercive acts called the Intolerable Acts by the colonists. This led to George Washington's proposal of resolutions, one of which called for the creation of the Continental Congress. Washington was selected as a delegate to the First Continental Congress, while also helping to train county militias in Virginia, just in case things escalated to violence. And of course, they did. The battles of Lexington and Concord in 1775 started the American Revolutionary War. Washington quickly left Mount Vernon to go to the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. It was only a couple of months after the Congress created the Continental Army. Both Samuel and John Adams nominated George for the position of Commander-in-Chief, passing over the candidate John Hancock. The next day, he was unanimously elected. He was praised by the congressional delegates, and Washington even denied taking a salary for his position. When the British issued Dunmore's proclamation, which promised freedom to slaves if they joined the British Army, Congress allowed free African Americans to serve in the militia, and by the end of the war, one-tenth of Washington's army were black. As we all know, the colonies won the Revolutionary War and began a nation of independence. Returning from war, Washington was a celebrity. He had only spent 10 days at Mount Vernon during the eight-and-a-half-year war. When he returned, there were visitors almost every day, people wishing to say thank you for Washington's efforts and leadership. Washington did not spend much time relaxing, however, as he feared for the future of a new nation. At the end of the Revolutionary War, there was lots of confusion and debate surrounding how the new country should be governed. The Articles of Confederation that had been put in place were not strong enough to unite all the states into one nation. Well, according to Washington, that is. He stated that the, quote, Articles of Confederation were no more than a rope of sand linking the states, end quote. Washington supported a strong national constitution, and in the spring of 1787, each state sent delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia to discuss the matter. Washington initially declined his nomination to be sent to the convention as the Virginia delegate, but later agreed when he was convinced that his presence might induce reluctant states to send their own delegates. At this convention in the spring of 1787, Washington presided as President General. The convention's purpose was to revise the Articles of Confederation, but Washington supported an entirely new constitution that increased the power of the national government. Washington was elected to be the first ever president of the United States, with John Adams serving as his vice president. Washington was sworn into the office at his inauguration on April 30, 1780, in Federal Hall in New York City. 
He again declined to take a salary for his position, but Congress insisted and paid him $25,000 a year. With Washington being the first person to ever hold this office, almost every action he took set a precedent for future presidents to follow. Firstly, he chose the title Mr. President, even though the Senate proposed the titles of His Excellency and His Highness the President. He also set the precedent of an inaugural address, a message to Congress, as well as creating the cabinet of the executive branch. He also remained staunchly nonpartisan during his presidency. He feared the divisiveness that political parties imposed, saying that, though, Washington's views and actions definitely leaned towards the Federalists, as he supported a strong central government. The creation of the executive positions were approved by Congress in 1789, but Congress now had oversight in Washington's appointments to the positions. A great example of the divisiveness in government that Washington feared was between his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, and his Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Washington's domestic policies and affairs centered around the issue of slavery, the economy, and the unification of a diverse nation. Certain southern U.S. states, specifically Georgia and South Carolina, threatened a civil war as anti-slavery petitions were being passed around. Washington and the rest of the national government feared the disassembly of a nation that had just fought to unite, so they responded with pro-slavery legislation, including the denial of citizenship to black immigrants, the barring of slaves to serve in state militias, the admittance of two more slave states, Kentucky and Tennessee, and the continuation of slavery in federal territories south of the Ohio River. Washington also implemented the Fugitive Slave Act that suppressed state laws and allowed for slave catchers to cross state lines and return escaped slaves. But even with all of this slavery-protecting legislation, Washington also signed into law the Slave Trade Act of 1794 that outlawed the involvement of American ships in the Atlantic slave trade. In other words, slaves could no longer be brought to America from Africa. But importantly, there were so many slaves already in the U.S., and the children that they bore were also confined to a life of slavery, so this act really did little to actually prevent the continuation of the slave practice. Washington himself owned and oversaw the hundreds of slaves that worked on his Mount Vernon plantation. Washington was neither particularly kind nor particularly violent towards his slaves, his slaves were given time off on Sundays and on holidays, their conditions were average for the time, and Washington was known to occasionally approve of the flogging of some slaves. But as his presidency continued, Washington started to privately express his support for gradual emancipation. I say privately because Washington knew that slavery was a divisive topic and feared any more divisiveness in the nation. He gave moral support to Lafayette's plan to purchase land and send free slaves to work on it, but Washington himself never participated. In 1788, Washington declined to establish an abolition society in Virginia, stating that it wasn't the time. But Washington did end up freeing all the slaves that he owned. The first indication of his desire to do so was in a letter that he wrote in 1794, in which he expressed his wishes to sell his land in West Virginia, quote, to liberate a certain species of property which I possess, very repugnantly to my own feelings, end quote. 
Then in 1799, Washington wrote into his will that all of his slaves were to be freed after the death of his wife, Martha. He forbade the transportation of the slaves out of Virginia until then, as he wished to keep the African-American families close. After their freedom, he wrote that he wished the younger slaves to be taught how to read and write and be placed in suitable occupations. Martha ended up freeing all of Georgia's slaves the year after his death. But it's important to note that Martha didn't free all of his slaves because she was some sort of abolitionist. Martha actually feared for her life as the slaves were to receive their freedom after her death. Also, Washington did not only use his slaves as free labor, but also used them as body part donors. Washington had ruined his teeth, reportedly by cracking walnut shells for years, and by the time of his inauguration, it was said that he only had one real tooth in his mouth. So he was outfitted with dentures made from teeth pulled from the mouths of his slaves. Some other teeth in his dentures were made from cow teeth and ivory. The dentures caused Washington discomfort and served as one of the reasons why he actually rarely smiled. He even had to have his pancakes and syrup cut into tiny pieces to make them easier to eat. With the creation of a new country also came the creation of a new independent economic system. Hamilton, as Secretary of the Treasury, took charge of the creation of a national bank. Hamilton's financial views were not shared by all, however, of course, notably Thomas Jefferson, but eventually they reached the Compromise of 1790, where Hamilton's assumption of state's debts was approved under the condition from Jefferson that the nation's capital be moved further south, temporarily to Philadelphia, then later to what is now Washington, D.C. George Washington signed the Funding Act of 1790 and the Residence Act that solidified this compromise into law. Furthermore, Hamilton supported the creation of a national bank, called the First Bank of the United States. Even through opposition, the bank proposal passed in Congress and Washington signed the legislation on February 25th. The tensions only grew between Jefferson and Hamilton, and in 1793, Washington planned on dismissing Jefferson from his position, but he resigned before then. Another defining event of Washington's presidency was the Whiskey Rebellion. A federal tax was placed on alcohol, and there were those that saw this as similar to the taxes imposed on the colonies by the British. But Washington rationalized that these taxes were being imposed by elected officials chosen by the people. There were threats and violence against tax collectors, which culminated in the Whiskey Rebellion. As a result, Washington invoked the Militia Act of 1792 to summon state militias. Rebels were arrested and fighting ceased. This event exemplified, for one of the first times, the power that Washington wielded as president. Washington's views towards Native Americans was unkind, but not overtly violent. Washington hoped that Native Americans would simply assimilate into Western culture. He also hoped that he could seize Native American land through treaties rather than violence. But when Native tribes would refuse to give up their land, because why would they, Washington would send expeditions to destroy their towns, so they were forced to leave, and he believed because he gave the Native Americans a choice to hand over their land peacefully, his actions in invading their land were justified. Native Americans were honestly seen as foreigners. Washington met with many Native tribe leaders, including his meeting with Creek Chief Alexander McGilvray in New York City, asking them to integrate into white American culture. 
He was not an advocate for the direct killing of Native Americans, and he was known to equate the killing of indigenous people with the killing of white people. Most people know that Washington set the precedent of a two-term maximum in office, but did you know that George didn't even want to run for his second term? Washington wished to return to his peaceful life at Mount Vernon, and honestly, he wanted to avoid all of the infighting in his cabinet and the increasingly divided government, and his own wife Martha urged him not to run as well. But the idea that Washington would not continue as president was almost unfathomable to many. Hamilton was quoted as saying that Washington's absence from the presidency would be, quote, deplored as the greatest evil to the country, end quote. And Jefferson promised to stop attacking Hamilton if it meant that Washington would run for another term. So when the election of 1792 rolled around, Washington was unanimously elected again with John Adams as his vice president. After his second term concluded, Washington retired as president to ensure that the history of long rule by British monarchs would not be continued in this new country. Washington's retirement set a significant precedent, and it was later signed into law that a president could only serve two terms. Then in 1796, Washington issued his farewell address. In this famous address to the nation, Washington warned against regionalism, partisanship, and foreign entanglements. He urged Americans to be united as one, and not discrimination based on locale or political party. He also advised against involvement in European wars, and advocated friendship with all nations. In this address, he also reflected on his time as the first president. He said, quote, Though in reviewing the indecence of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults and incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest, End quote. After his retirement from office, Washington returned to Mount Vernon and created a distillery business. While the French Revolution continued in Europe, the U.S. never got directly involved, but there were a series of quasi-wars when the French stole some American ships. John Adams, now president, nominated Washington to the position of commander-in-chief of the armies, and Washington accepted. But it wasn't long after that that Washington became ill with a throat infection and died on December 14, 1799, at the age of 67. There are those that speculate that he actually died of blood loss, as the doctors at the time came to his aid when he fell ill and treated him with a medical practice called bloodletting, in which they removed about five pints of his blood. Also, George had a large fear of being buried alive, so he instructed his family to wait three days after his death before being buried to ensure that he was truly dead. Anyway, after his death, Congress adjourned, businesses closed, and cities across the U.S. held services for their first president. Washington is still honored today through the name of our nation's capital, and he's the only president to have a state named after him as well. Also, there is no one that will ever rank higher in the U.S. military. In 1976, Washington was posthumously awarded the highest rank in the U.S. military, and a law was passed that gave Washington the rank 
of General of the Armies of the United States, and nobody else will ever hold the same rank or higher in the U.S. military. Another title that George Washington held was that of Chancellor of the College of William and Mary. He took the position in 1788 and continued to serve through his presidency until his death. Washington will always be remembered in American history as the father of the country, founding various institutions that still remain today and setting precedents that other presidents would follow for years to come. He navigated the colonies through the Revolutionary War and helped establish the nation's new independent history. But he also owned hundreds of slaves, stole land from Native Americans that lived there for hundreds of years, and signed into law legislation that supported the institution of slavery. But now to finish up with one of my favorite quotes from Washington, and I think a defining quote of this past U.S. president. Quote, Liberty, when it begins to take root, is a plant of rapid growth, end quote. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode to learn about George Washington. A special thank you to intern Meredith for reading our advertisements, and another thank you to A.J. Alomar for letting me ask him some questions about his knowledge of President Washington. This was our last episode specifically covering the life of a past U.S. president, but next week we will be stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. Why is it less known that Lincoln was a supporter of the racist colonization movement, or that Grover Cleveland was a rapist, or that maybe Ulysses S. Grant wasn't too qualified to serve as our president? We will be discussing how we teach our younger generations about our presidents. Do we remember them with a retrospective glow? Why is it important to learn the real stories of our past leaders? How does the whole concept of elections by the population play into the remembrance of these presidents? In other words, are Americans reluctant to accept that they could have elected inadequate leaders to the highest position in the country? So please stay tuned for the next episode.